future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. everybody everybody welcome welcome it is friday july 28th 2023 welcome to raging chickens friday politics roundup this is attempt number three this morning (laughs) yes this is kevin mahoney editor and founder of raging chicken each week we break down the good the bad and the ugly in state and national politics you can help support this show by heading over to our patreon you know, become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Go to www.patreon.com. You can also help out the show by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time we go live. And if you're one of our awesome podcast listeners, well, make sure to leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you listen on. And leave a comment to let other folks know why you like the show. Little things like this help other people find the show. And we can't let Paul Martino, Moms for Liberty, and their oligarch friends buy our schools and push extremist politics in our community. Raging Chicken has teamed up with Level Field to launch a truly community-rooted PAC to invest in organizing, supporting local and statewide progressive candidates, and unmasking the toxic organizations injecting our communities with right-wing extremism. We're putting small-dollar donations to work to beat back the power of big money. You get more information and drop your donation at ragingchicken.levelfield.net. On today's show, oh, we got a lot of stuff going on this week. Yes, new indictments against Trump were just announced. That ditch just keeps getting deeper. <laughs> yes. And this week, the UPS Teamsters announced a historic contract win uh, just a week before what could have been one of the largest strikes in American history. Now, the details of the contract will be proof to that claim, of course. Now, since the announcement, um, some UPS Teamsters uh, are, you know, and are saying that the union's 180,000 uh, part-time workers may not have gotten as good a deal as first suggested. So we're going to see how that plays itself out. Um, but uh, there's no doubt that uh, people were definitely on edge. There's all sorts of suggestions that Biden was putting pressure upon the Teamsters to settle, um, Teamsters at UPS to settle, that um, there may have been some other factors. We just don't know, right? I mean, all this conjecture at this point. Um, on Monday, the 31st, uh, the full contract is going to be shared for what, at least what we know is going to be shared with members. And then voting should be begin shortly after that. And the, the voting window is open for a couple of weeks at least. Um, so um, at least there's a tentative agreement, but uh, the members have yet to speak and uh, really take a look at what what they got. So we shall see. And what could prove to be a sign that higher education faculty are willing to step up and fight to an even greater degree? The American Association of University Professors, the AAUP, voted to affiliate with the American Federation of Teachers. The alliance will now be the largest union of higher education faculty in the country, and that will put them at about 300,000 strong. Following new scientific data from the World Meteorological Organization on this summer's record heat, UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez claimed that the era of global warming has ended and the global the era of global boiling has arrived. 
I'll say. Need any proof? Well, check these out. It's been so hot in Arizona that the state's famous saguaro cacti are literally collapsing. You know, the ones, the big arms? They're literally falling over for the intense heat and lack of water. That's crazy. Ocean temperatures, here's another one. Ocean temperatures around Florida are signaling over 100 degrees, which could be a global record. Now, these are preliminary findings. We'll see if that bears itself out, but... You know, there's been record heat in the ocean temperatures um, all around Florida and through the North Atlantic. Um, And we've also begun to see uh, coral bleaching events beginning um, around Florida. Scientists are rushing to save some of the coral um, in hopes to be able to repopulate it when the temperatures drop. But uh, this is a sign of our future. And if you need something else that climate change is giving us to worry about, well, check this one out. More Americans are developing a rare meat allergy, alpha-gal syndrome which is linked to bites from the Lone Star Tick. Now, new data from the CDC finds a steep increase in the cases of alpha-gal. Alpha-gal can give you stomach cramps, diarrhea, hives, shortness of breath that could trigger fatal anaphylaxis, and that's according to the BBC. And of course, as we know, as the temperatures change and they get warmer, populations of all sorts of critters begin to migrate, and one of them is this Lone Star Tick. Great. Now, GM and other major auto manufacturers announced that they will be building 30,000 electric vehicle chargers um, to help build out the electric vehicle charging network across the country, which we'll see. Still, I'd like to see that investment in public transportation, but we'll just, you know, uh, you know, we don't even have time for baby steps anymore, but whatever. We'll take what we can get, I guess. Our Republican politicians and media personalities make it seem as though parents across the country are just up in arms about their public schools. Well, it turns out about 80% of parents responding to a new Gallup poll said they are somewhat or completely satisfied with their child's school. That confirms what a string of other polls told us that during the pandemic, right? That parents are generally really satisfied with their local schools. Where's the gap? Well, between that kind of national picture and the ideological and propaganda that we get on kind of like in uh, like Fox News, right wing media and so on versus what's happening in people's backyards. Right. So we talk about other people's schools or the nation's schools and people have problems. We've talked about their own schools. Oh, no, they're great. Right. Pretty crazy. And Mitch McConnell suffered a medical incident in the middle of a press conference. The party line is that he's fine. Uh, but no information about what actually happened was released. And it was a little creepy, I got to say. You know, it was the kind of thing where, uh, you know, he was starting this press conference, start was the middle of a sentence, and his mouth just kind of closed tight, and he stared off in the distance. It was, it was kind of freaky. Uh, my first thought was the guy probably had a stroke. But, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not a m- medical personnel at all. So, I'll, you know, don't take that from me. Um, it's a little strange that nobody's releasing anything, especially since the huge uproar against uh, John Fetterman and other, um, you know, all the medical ailments of anybody else in Congress that happens to be a Democrat. Uh, but it turns out once a Republican, then, you know, one, other Democrats and generally the kind of the public is fairly, con- you know, expresses like concern, right? Or hope that he's okay, <laughs> right? Even if we fundamentally disagree with the guy, you know, um, politically. Uh, but, you know, no right wing grifters are out there kind of like you know, calling for Mitch McConnell to uh, step down um, and some sort of Chinese communist uh, kind of uh, uh, conspiracy that um, Mitch McConnell is a robot. None of that. <laughs> right. Um, so crazy. 
Yeah, Amy's that early stages of dementia. Yeah, that's I, I've, I've seen some people kind of uh, be thinking about that too as well. I mean, that could be what's going on. Uh, we shall see. And Central Bucks School Board voted to give their superintendent, Dr. Abram Lukabau, an $86,000 raise and a New Year 5 five-year contract. Yep, that's a 40% raise. I love a 40% raise. Do you like a 40% raise? He'd like a 40% raise. Yep, that's well. That's after, of course, Lukabau joined the board's new right-wing, uh, you know, right-wing majority, right? You know, to ban books, uh, institute anti-LGBTQ policies, and so much more. He will now be one of the highest-paid public school administrators in Pennsylvania. And right down the road, the Penridge School District, their board members are enraged, some of them at least, over secret curriculum meetings between Vermilion Education's Jordan Adams and select members of the board, right? Now, Christine Baticki, she used to be one of the darlings of the far right, used to be kind of like one of the kind of, I guess, uh, Red Wizard apprentices. Well, she's uh, apparently on the outs now because... uh, She's uh, talking publicly about the fact that she just found out by happenstance that Jordan Blomgren and Megan Bannis Clemens uh, were meeting secretly with Adams to discuss the direction of the curriculum. All right, that's despite Christine Baticki being on the curriculum committee, <laughs> right? Transparency, transparency is what they say. Got it. On his past weekend, Barbie broke box office records as the right wing lost its collective mind. Again. <laughs> oh, God. And my heart broke a little bit. Um, Sinead O'Connor died at the age of 56. Um, I spent a little time listening to her stuff and it was flooded with the memories, what that music meant in my life and when it came in and of all that. And the guys see just came across a uh, a uh, a pat, pat, really passionate tribute to uh, Sinead O'Connor written by Morrissey, um, and uh, in that he also condemns the music industry for how they they treated her. I mean, there was a story, for example, it's not what he told, but this was uh, in, w- in one of the articles I think in the Guardian. There was you know talking about some of the history with her. Is like um, we're talking about you know how she shaved her head and um, and that dates back apparently as the story goes to a time early on in her career um when uh one of her producers or someone in the industry or manager or something like this said that um she needs to be more girly or her hair needs to be more girly and her response to that was to shave her head and that pretty much shows you uh, one of these windows into her life We'll get to that and more today. Um, so uh, for more PA Progressive Talk, tune to the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern. Check out his YouTube channel, Twitter, or Facebook, wherever you get your streams. And subscribe to his podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Check out the thericksmithshow.com for the latest across all his platforms. And you got to check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast, the amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast, Rock the House. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And subscribe to their podcast on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast. And if you haven't heard, The Signal is a new podcast by the Bucks County Beacon. The Signal is hosted by the Beacon's editor-in-chief, Cyril Michaleko, and produced by yours truly. Twice a month, The Signal will shine a light on the right-wing extremist currents streaming through Bucks County and beyond. Cyril invites guests who can provide insight, analysis, and organizing solutions so that we can steer the community toward calmer, saner, progressive roots. 
Check out the podcast at buckscountybeacon.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcast. And attention all you gamers out there, the Game Inn, that's with two N's, the Game Inn is a Quakertown-based, black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything for Retro N64s, the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, walls of Funko Pops. It's a great place. You got a question about a game, looking for something hard to get, they've got you covered. Check them out on their Facebook page or follow them at Twitter at, at the Game Inn, again with two N's. Shoot them a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. And a shout-out goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff and follow his YouTube page. And check him out on Twitter at, at @songadayman. That's at @songadayman with two N's on Twitter. Look, everybody, want a progressive future? We need progressive media. Support Pull No Punches, homegrown progressive media today. Become a patron of Raging Chicken for as little as 5 bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress. We're here for the fight, and we need you. Become a patron for the price of a good beer once a month. Help keep the media in the movement and the movement in the media. Become a patron for as little as five bucks a month by going to patreon.com slash RC Press today. Well, uh, thank you, everybody. Thank you for tuning in today. And a special shout out goes to uh, Jenny and Amy, um, who uh, let me know that we had no sound this morning. <laughs> yes, that's right. Now, despite the fact uh, I had tested all this stuff ahead of time, checked it all out ahead of time, made sure everything was up and running. But as you know, the past few weeks, um, there's been a little technological adjustment happening over here. Um, my mixer blew out um, uh, right before last Friday's show. And so I've had to jerry-rig something. Um, and I've got it working out, but it turns out there's all these little quirks that still start showing up. Um, today, first... Uh, for some reason, the mic was not registering once I w let the stream go live. And then once I was able to get it going live, then I had a massive echo. We got that fixed and we should be good to go now. But so thank you, Amy and Jenny, for letting me know what was going on. And uh, that's what allows you to hear me now. <laughs> so here you go. Um, yep. You know, big deal, obviously, coming up again. And I don't mean to be sound dismissive of this, right? Um um, that's not my intention. Um, but, uh, as you, you know, if you listen to this podcast, you know, that, um, everything that's happening with, uh, Trump right now, right. Um, that's in the hands of the courts, right. There's the hands thing there and there's not a whole lot I can do about it. <laughs> right. There's not a whole lot of say organizing that we can do about this. Right. We can write letters. We could say, well, but it's in the, it's in court, you know, it's in court right now. So, call me I, I don't know what you want to call me about this but you know following each kind of like step in the 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 law case like if you really want to if you really want to find out what's happening day by day or you want to get all people's hot takes on what is happening and what's going through the minds of prosecutors just go watch msnbc at night that's all they cover now right so i mean and so i feel why waste too much time talking about that, <laughs> right? There's MSNBC's wall-to-wall -wall coverage of kind of the intricacies of the trials um, that are happening uh, with Trump. So if you want to know about that, I encourage you to go check that out. But for me, um, not so much. Um, but it is significant, right, for today. So a new indictment comes down um, and um, regarding this handling of classified documents um, down on Mar-a-Lago. Um, and it looks like now there's been some at least two, I believe, other employees who have also um, been, uh, let's see, 
were also charged on Thursday. Um, at least maybe that's just one. Um, but about the about the attempts to destroy uh, destroy evidence um, that included like attempting to flood an area to um, make the cameras stop working. So or all the recordings, the security cameras that would be kind of like malfunction. They wouldn't be able to hold on to their data, so the prosecutors couldn't get it. Um, there's also apparently um, the concern about with that want to get rid of the footage is because not only would it basically show that Trump actually had the documents, but to see who had access to them, right? Because people could walk back and forth and see who's there. Oh, look, they're on camera. They're going in there checking out the documents, right? Um, that's not Trump. That's like, who's that? You know, we never saw. So, um, so we shall see, we shall see. Um, so now I'll just say this. The indictment laid out what federal authorities say was a scheme to uh, obstruct in the ongoing investigation. Trump was very focused on not allowing officials to get their hands on his boxes, it indicates. Um, these are from court documents. They said, quote, I don't want anybody looking. I don't want anybody looking through my boxes. I really don't. Trump told his lawyer in May 2022, according to the indictment, quote, what happens if we just don't respond at all or we don't play ball with them? Wouldn't it be better if we just told them we don't have anything here? Unquote. And it kind of goes on, right? I mean, it's the same old, same old stuff that you can say. The, the man's a horrible human being, um, and he's clearly uh, broken all sorts of laws, has his entire life, and now um, maybe um, he'll face some justice. But we shall see. I mean, uh, I have very, you know, little trust in the justice system when it comes to rich people, <laughs> okay? Um, never mind Donald Trump. Um, the fact that he's rich... That's what is ultimately going to matter, right? The fact that do we prosecute um, criminals at the highest level, right? And it's only when, you know, when they're when they're quasi-official, right? Yeah, sure, we're going to go after, you know, people go after, like, you know, mob bosses, right? Because, you know, they're outside the acceptable kind of capitalist accumulation scheme, right? But, you know, if you're playing roughly within the rules of the capitalist ball game, right, guess what, you know? You got to get out of jail free card pretty much sticking in your pocket, right? It's like wired in or kind of sewn into all your clothing, <laughs> right? All your Armani, Gucci stuff, right? So, right? Yes, but that's how, you know, the American uh, judicial system works, right? As every once in a while, you do prosecute a rich person so everybody can point to them and say, see, no, there's equal justice under the law. Um, but the vast majority of people know that that's not the way it works. So uh, the fact that Trump was a former president and this is unprecedented in terms of the charges, in terms of the trial, um, I just think that points to um, uh, my own skepticism or cynicism, if you will, about that he's actually going to face justice for what he's done. Now, I hope to God I'm wrong. Right? I hope he goes to jail for a long, long time. Um, but whatever. So that's that. So now this week, um, the big news at the beginning of the week, of course, was that the Teamsters announced that they had reached a uh, historic, what they called a historic tentative agreement um, for the workers at UPS. Right now, uh, that originally came out and it was, you know, a cause for celebration. I mean, I, you know, based upon I went in, I kind of looked at the uh, the actual announcement um, looked at the details that they put out, and it truly did look like 
it was um, a historic contract. They said, look, we made this is a historic contract. We won gains for all of our workers. We we went we fought against the two tiered system of employment and uh, there were no concessions. Right. That was the way it was put forward. And I was like, damn, that's great. Because you remember just on this past Monday, we had uh, Alexandra Bradbury on the show from Labor Notes. She's the editor of Labor Notes. She was on the show talking about the history of organizing, like the past like several decades of kind of member to member rank and file organizing um, to change the direction of teachers and making a fighting union once again. Right. Away from the behind the scenes kind of closed doors, um, boss run union into a true powerhouse of worker organization. Um, and so, I mean, and that's there's no doubt about it. There's been a, a, a like a seismic shift in in the Teamsters. Right. Um, and one of the key claims that was coming out of the organizing, one of the reasons why there was potentially going to be a strike is they were fighting against a two tiered system. Right. In other words, that you've got your regular employees and then you've got part timers, you've got second class citizens or you've got, you know, all this. And and the 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 majority of the workers in that contract, the full time ones and so on like this are the ones who get get the most benefits while the part timers generally get the shaft. Right. That's the way that two tier contracts work. I mean, my own union, ABSCUF, has fought against that. It's one of the reasons we went on strike, probably one of the main reasons we went on strike in 2016 was over the administration's uh, Pashi's attempts to create a two-tier system um, that we would kind of, you know, divide and conquer move. That's what UPS has been doing for quite some time. That the last contract, um, as, you know, Alexander Bradbury talked about on Monday, the last uh, Teamsters contract for UPS um, was voted down by the membership. Um, but the leadership of the union at that time, Hoffa and his people, right, um, they basically found a... Uh, you know, whatever, a, a loophole in some of their policies and bylaws that allowed them to institute the contact. So in other words, against the wishes of their members, right, the leadership of the Teamsters imposed the contract that they uh, that they had agreed to, the tentative agreement they had agreed to with um, the, the bosses, right, with the management. So that was one of the things that fueled, uh, you know, Hoffa getting uh, voted out. Right. Sean O'Connor. Uh, I'm sorry, Sean O'Brien um, becoming the uh, the new president um, with a new kind of mentality um, to say that, no, we are going to we are going to fight for our members and we are going to organize our members. And that has been incredibly inspiring and I think has been really significant uh, and an inspiration to the rest of the labor movement. Now, since that contract, um, since it has announced that contract, um, there has been um, some indications of some disenchantment uh, from the part-time faculty or part-time part -time workers left in, in the deal. So uh, the first one that I saw, again, I don't know if this is first out of the gate, but um, Mike Elk reported in the payday report. Um, I'll just read a little bit from here so, and we shall see if this plays itself out. Um, he says Teamsters UPS deal leaves out 180,000 part-timers said earlier today, the Teamsters announced that they had reached a historic tentative agreement. Um, the Teamsters had not released the, the legal language yet, but just the highlights. Again, that's 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 not unusual. That's normally how it works, right? Until the, everything gets buttoned up and the members get to see it first. So the Teamsters said, we changed the game, tweeted the, the Teamsters. Today, the Teamsters reached the most historic uh, tentative agreement in the history of UPS. 
Now, the news shocked many who expected the Teamsters Union would hold out until their contract expired in July 31st before reaching a deal. This past weekend, Teamsters President Sean O'Brien declared uh, at a rally in the weekend, we've organized, strategized, and now it's time to pulverize. However, President Biden pressured the Teamsters to settle nearly a week before the deadline to avoid any shocks that uncertainty of the strike could uh, cause the economy. Now, today's announcement, quote, you know, this is what Biden says, a statement. And um, uh, Mike Elk claims that um, the Teamsters did not want to upset the White House. Now, this is this is the thing that we shall see what happens in the details is the contract leaves over 180,000 part timers, part timer UPS workers with no path to making full time status or wages equivalent to what full timers earn, maintaining a subcategory of part time precarious workers at UPS. Part time workers will start at twenty one dollars an hour. Only seven thousand five hundred part time workers will be converted to full time. Less than ten thousand part time workers converted to full time status during the um, 1997 strike. Right um, now, quote, I petitioned with the Teamsters for Democratic Unions call for a twenty five dollar hour base wage. I've been telling that my co-workers for five months, Chicago based UPS part timer Peter uh, Linsko, a told payday report. The part time activists I'm plugged into are furious. I feel um, betrayed. Other part time workers said the contract, which only guarantees part time drivers three point five hours a day, does little to eliminate the problem of part time workers being forced to uh, work full time hours at much lower wages. Right. And it kind of goes on. And so uh, Kim Kelly, also kind of labor reporter, also uh, was starting to hear from some part timers that there were some kind of issues. Um, but we should we should we'll know more when the details come out next week. Right. I'm just, more is going to start more actual kind of kind of in-depth reporting is going to happen because, look, here, here's a couple things I know about um, working with uh, on contracts. Right. Um, or, you know, being a part of a union is that no matter what contract gets signed, right, there's always going to be um, detractors, right? There's always going to be people that saying that this contract didn't do enough, right? And speaking as somebody who has often been that person or one of those people, right, who are angry at the settlement, right, and think that we should have done more and held out for more, right? So, I'm not saying that that provides an excuse. I'm not saying what the part-timers are saying are, is illegitimate. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm just saying is that it is common to hear this kind of uh, um, coming out of contracts, especially in a highly organized environment, right? So that shouldn't surprise us, right? That we're going to hear kind of people saying things didn't, didn't go far enough, right? I can tell you, I spoke to a UPS driver the other day. Um, this is, I think it was on Tuesday, right after the, right after the contract, the contract got settled and, um, asked him, say, wait, I heard the news. I said, is, is this good news? And I asked him now he was a driver. He was a full-time employee. I asked him if, you know, is, is this good news? He said, yeah, it's pretty good. Right. He didn't say it was the best. I said, yeah, it's pretty good. He said, at least we kind of were able to avoid the strike and stuff. And I said, you know, guy's working, right? He's going, he's not, not in a situation we can sit and have a long chat with him. Um, but, you know, he, we stopped and talked for a few minutes, and that's what he said. You know, he said, yeah, it was, it was good. He seemed happy with it, right? Seemed, you know, he's not going to share with me, you know, he's not going to share with me necessarily, you know, that all the details are some of his reservations, right? He was generally happy. He was proud of what they did, right? So that's good. But that's anecdotal. And so there's going to be other voices that are coming out. They're going to they're going to say no. Now, once workers actually see all the contract language, 
right? And once we start getting a sense of what that contract shows, then we're going to know a little about what actually what happened in those negotiations. And then we'll also start to get more reporting about what the Biden administration actually did, uh, what kind of pressure um, they brought, um, and what kind of threats, if any, were issued um, for here. Um, and then we're also going to start hearing, you know, more from the Teamsters, right? We're going to start hearing more about, you know, this is the best contract they could achieve and why. So with assessment. So here's here's why I'm spending a little time on this right now up front is because one thing that we should recognize regardless, right? I, I don't think it's, it's going, this is just based upon what I've been reading. I don't think the final contract, the language that we're going to see is going to say that basically it ignored $180,000 part-timers, right? I don't believe that's true, right? Even in the details that were that were released, right? There's, there's clear stuff that's directed toward the part-timers. However, um, given the um, whatever the pressures or given the way negotiations work, Right. Um, it could very well be true that uh, the part timers that, you know, the thing that was given up in the negotiation was the hard line of the part timer, the solidarity between full timers and part timers. Right. That somebody on the negotiation team was convinced or people on the negotiation team were, were convinced that, yes, there were enough people or that they got some increases and this is a step in the right direction. You always start hearing this kind of language, right? And that is going to piss off a lot of the part-timers. So we're going to see what happens there. But we should recognize the amazing amount of organizing that went into this, right? My biggest concern coming out of this, right? And reason why I think we should like look at this, right? Hear what these, hear what the workers actually have to say, not what commentators have to say, hear where they are. And I'm talking part-timers, full-timers across this stuff. So we kind of see what, ha what happened in the contract, certainly. Um, but my biggest concern is that the infighting, right? Or the sniping back and forth of people who have, who have, don't have a direct stake in the game, right? Um, will lead to dissatisfaction and a decrease in organizing. Now, I don't think that's going to happen, right? That's just kind of my concern. Because what UPS did, right, the fact that they were out there and they were ready to strike, right, and the fact that we saw a nationwide focus on what was happening at, uh, um, among the Teamsters and the organizing that was happening in there bolstered what was happening in the labor movement, right? As much as it drew energy from the organizing that's going on, it also gave that energy back in saying that we are ready to do this. The UPS pilots who were not who were not in these contract negotiations, them publicly stating, we're not flying packages. We are not crossing, we are not crossing picket lines. That's incredible. Solidarity across contracts and across workers, right? That's important. We get to see what that, what that looks like, right? So let, let's be clear because we also got the SAG-AFTRA and WGA strike is ongoing, Right. And we also have that's a huge sector, right, of the American economy, economy as well. Different kind of work, but nonetheless, it is work, right? And it, they're fighting for some of the exact same issues that were on on the table with this uh, UPS strike. So what's hopefully going to happen too, as well, is that that's also going to lend its support. The the language and understanding of what's happening to the American workforce is also going to kind of bolster what's happening in the SAG after a WGA strike. So we shall see. 
Um, but that's it's just big news. Regard, I mean, this is you know this all played itself out. We just it is incredible week, and then to have at the same time you have the uh, American Association of University Professors voting to affiliate with uh, the AFT. That's also huge, right? <clears throat> Here's a little bit from the um, this is from uh, the AFT from the statement that was released. Right. It says the historic alliance comes against the backdrop of increased legislative attacks on teaching and academic freedom, as well as persistent underfunding of public higher education that has led to the explosion in student debt, as well as adjunct precarity and poverty. Through the affiliation, the 44,000 member AAUP and the 1.7 million member AFT will work hard in hand, uh, will work hand in hand, I'm sorry, to protect academic freedom and unify faculty voices to fight back at the local, state and federal levels. Right. I wanted to focus on that paragraph in particular of the statement, because what that's showing you is that there's a if the organizing follows what they have written here, this is critical. Right. You're talking about an approach to organizing, an approach to unionization across like the nationwide. Right. That it's looking at the intersection of the erosion of uh, academic freedom. Right political legislative attacks on teaching right decry the, the, the uh like the the undermining of the working conditions of faculty right underfunding of public higher education explosion of student debt as well as part-time that's adjunct precarity and poverty right there is your collection your reason for organizing and if that becomes a recommitment to go after those issues this is going to be fantastic Right. I especially think this is going to be good for the AAUP. Right. Um, in part because the AAUP has their history. Right? AAUP's history is initially as kind of this association. Right. It's an association. And there were some chapters of the AAUP, which just they had they had they had members, but they were kind of like, you know, more they quote unquote negotiated, but they didn't really have contracts, binding contracts, because they weren't considered a union at that particular place, things like this, right? So it had this kind of like, and this has been changing over the years, certainly, but it had for a long time this kind of, uh, this reputation, right, of being stuck between, are we professionals, right? Or like, are we kind of like, you know, like doctors, or professionals, or are we workers, right? You know, this kind of back and forth. Um, and it's just such a, that's such a messed up mentality, right? It has more to do with, you know, like academia's like sense of their own self-importance in some ways, right? To think that we're so fundamentally different than all these other people, right? And it's just a different kind of work. Just, you know, get over yourselves, right? It's the kind of thing. But anyways, but that's been changing, like as kind of the conditions in higher education have gotten worse. So it makes sense that these, these uh, you know, AUP is becoming more and more of a kind of active uh, kind of militant union. Um, and the AFT is actually starting to respond to things, right? AFT, you know, like many kind of big unions has also, you know, grew a little complacent there for a while, but it's internal organizing by members, right? Wildcat strikes and things like this have helped revitalize EFT. So we shall see where this goes. But I think that's a ultimately a positive step forward when it comes to uh, what's happening, at least in the higher ed. So we're having that too. A um, bunch of stuff that I listed at the beginning of here. Now, again, we don't need to go into an immense amount of detail here. But, um, yes, the uh, the fact that U.N. Secretary Antonio Gutierrez talks about the the era of global boiling has arrived, you know, is 
it's well put. Now, I've saw some people sniping today on, on Twitter and things like this. Like, well, look, no matter how many times we change the name of it, it still doesn't matter. And I get that, right? Totally hear it, right? Um, certainly has been the case. Um, but that doesn't change the truth of what he's saying. I mean, I, I mean, I think our language has to, like, respond to the crisis, right? I mean, we can't just, you know, keep on calling it, like, should we just call it, like, you know, does, if it doesn't matter what we call things, then, like, okay, then let's just call it, like, you know, um, global shift or something like this. No. I have to find some way of registering the crisis, right, in language. So the area of global boiling, like, has arrived, I think is pretty apt, especially if we saw these record temperatures happen in, uh, in the ocean off the coast of Florida. A hundred degrees, that's like hot tub-like temperature. And frankly, there's just, you know, species, right? Coral, as one example, can't survive in that, right? I mean, and the fact that you've got, like, the arms of the giant cactuses in Arizona falling off because it's too hot for cacti? Are you freaking kidding me? And there has been so little rain that the cacti, you know, the ones who don't need a lot of rain, that the cacti are withering and falling apart, collapsing. I mean, you could snipe at, you know, Gutierrez saying global boiling instead of, you know, global warming. But I, what the hell else are you going to say? I mean, like climate catastrophe. Yes. Climate crisis. Yes. Right. How do you indicate that? Look, it's not just warming anymore. It's going to be the point where people are going to die. People are dying. People are falling over. Right. They trip. They fall on the concrete or fall on the asphalt and they're getting third degree burns. It's so hot. And we're going to get a tiny taste of this in the northeast this weekend. Right. Temperature supposed to go in the 90s. We're going to have heat index of over 103. But, yeah, that's because of the humidity. But that's nowhere near. Like, I mean, three weeks straight, more than three weeks straight of temperatures over 110 in Phoenix. That's pretty nuts. And this is not just the United States. you got to understand, right? I mean, I, I know you understand. And if you're listening to the show, you understand. But we all have to just kind of constantly come back to the fact that this is not just the United States. This is not just about a heat wave. This is about global temperatures. And that it's about the burning of fossil fuels. As Gutierrez said, he said, humanity is in the hot seat. For vast parts of North America, Asia, and Europe, it is a cruel summer. For the entire planet, it is a disaster. And for scientists, it is unequivocal. Humans are to blame. All this is entirely consistent with predictions and repeated warnings. The only surprise is the speed of the change. Climate change is here. It is terrifying, and it is just the beginning. The era of global warming has ended. The era of global boiling has arrived. Gutierrez urged politicians to take swift action. Quote, 
the uh, the air is unbreathable, the heat is unbearable, and the level of fossil fuel profits and climate inaction is unacceptable. Leaders must lead. No more hesitancy. No more excuses. No more waiting for others to move fast. There is simply no more time for that. And you know, I I don't know how else how else you put it, right? I mean, anybody here, you know, been saying this. You know, I know that. Look, <clears throat> we got the we got some major actions that are coming up by the PA Climate Convergence here. Um, Karen Faraday and the folks for Burke's Gas Gas Truth, we're going to have them on pretty soon again, um, as promised. Right when, when she was on the show last time, we said, okay, we'll bring her back on later in the summer when we start getting closer to this. And I think that uh, this is probably a good time for it. Remind us, you know, we should be there for the uh, the climate convergence um, in Harrisburg um for there so i'll give we'll good details on that coming up <clears throat> maybe i'll see if again i didn't mention this at the top of the show but we have a um i had a couple again it's one of these weeks i have a, a few irons in the fire for looking for um guests for monday um but maybe i'll reach out to karen too as well see maybe we get her on monday um given um the, the, this new report i think that would be would be a good fit i could postpone some others a different time but whatever um so yeah, there we have it. There we have it. Um, now this week we also saw that GM and other automakers uh, are going to build thirty thousand electric vehicle chargers. Uh, the companies, uh, which include, let's see, BM, uh, uh, BMW Group, uh, General Motors, Honda, Hyundai, Kia, Mercedes-Benz Group, and Stellantis. They will initially invest at least $1 billion in a joint venture that will build 30,000 charging ports on major highways and other locations in the United States and Canada. United States and Canada have about 36,000 fast chargers and those that can replenish a drain battery in 30 minutes or less. It's some spar- in some sparsely populated areas, such chargers can be hundreds of miles apart. And surveys show that fear about not being able to find a charger during longer journeys is a major reason uh, that car buyers are reluctant to buy electric vehicles. And this is coming from the you know, report in the New York Times. Right. So kudos, you know, to BMW, to General Motors, Honda, Hyundai, Kia, Mercedes-Benz and Stellantis. OK, you're all there. Um, that's good. Thirty thousand. Um, but let's let's be clear. Right. This is something that should have been done by our government. Right. This is something that in the Build Back Better bill that Biden had proposed this would have been something that would have been public investment. And why does that matter? Because guess what? Like these groups, BMW, General Motors, Honda, Hyundai, Kia, Mercedes-Benz Group, and Stellantis, they are not in it for the public good. They're in it for profit. So that means every time you're going to go charge up your electric car, if you have an electric car, right, that this group is going to benefit. They're going to profit off it because they're not doing it for free. They're going to profit. Right. Maybe if you buy one of their cars, you'll get a discount. Right. Or maybe they'll put a little thing in that little the charging stations that will make sure that only one of their cars. Is. They'll, they'll change their, you know, specifications or something. Who knows? Kind of like what Tesla did. But it's frustrating, right? I mean, we're going to that I'm sitting here going to clap for these giant corporations who helped create this problem. And now we're going to get for-profit charging stations around the country is going to be our infrastructure bill. 
privately owned, privately determined where they go. And if you're a corporation, guess what you're going to focus on? You're going to focus on your high, where you're going to be serving your customers the most. Do you think you're going to be focused on rural areas? You think BMW and Mercedes is going to really give a crap about people kind of like, you know, in the mountains in Pennsylvania or kind of like in other areas that are far distant? Do you think they're going to cut? No, because they're going to be like, hey, look, there's a little hole. Hey, let's look at Appalachia. A lot of poor folks. I don't know if we need so many there. Let's where you know, we're going to look at our demographic data about where our buyers are. Now, it's true, Hyundai and Kia, they have a little bit more kind of better price stuff, but, you know, they're going to they're gonna put these things where the profit is, not where they're needed. And again, should they be doing this? Absolutely. Right? But we should say this is something we should be doing collectively, right? That we should be do collectively with our government, right? Because this is what is supposed to represent all of us, to ensure that we all get a, kind of like a piece of the pie. This is also the reason that way, you know, this should all be... We should have equal investment in public transportation, high-speed trains, like new rails, trolleys, short trains. Right? I mean, it's crazy. <clears throat> but then the other thing, so there's that. And the other thing I just want to, you know, to mention, this is great, that, that great poll by, you know, um, but the Gallup poll shows that about 80% of parents uh, basically are, you know, satisfied with their kids' school. You know, just, it just this is what I mean by when I said at the top of the show, the gap between like the real world and actual schools versus the ideological, you know, the, uh, the ideological construction of it. I was like, look, when people are plugged in, it's really interesting. You talk to talk to parents, right? You know, and there's, you know, I mean, I live in, in, in an area where it's, you know, it's mostly Republican, like majority Republican. <clears throat> but, you know. A lot of parents you talk to, they're concerned about their schools, right? Um, but if you ask them about their schools, right, you know, or, you know, talk to all these folks, these parents that went to my kids' schools and you'd sit around different events, you talk about things like this, they love the school, all right? In the Penridge School District, right, they love the school. Talk about, oh, man, these teachers are amazing, right? The principal's amazing. The aides are fantastic. They have these great events. We love it. We love it. We love it. Right. You hear them rave about like the education they get and the teachers at the high school and the middle school, like all this kind of stuff. Right. And yet the minute you start putting it in a political frame, you've got these crazies on our school board who are out there talking about like, you know, you know, pedophiles and and grooming and all this other kind of stuff. But if you ask people, but even like it's just like you ask about their school, oh, no, they're fine. But there could be others out there, you know, well, we know this happened in other schools. Ah, and when politicians get their hands on this, they talk about the problems of all the stuff in schools, and you know, abstractly in the kind of right wing mind because they're involved the right wing media. That's it's a huge problem. It's like the looming boogeyman. It's over there, even though they can say in the same breath they love their schools, their kids' schools. So, go figure. <laughs> go figure. That's our predicament, right? That's yes, manufactured rage, Jenny. Absolutely, one hundred percent. And that shows you kind of what happened and what, what the fruits of that manufactured raise are, right? I mean, you know, as I mentioned at the top, um, Central Buck School Board voted to give Superintendent Abram Lukabal just a ginormous raise, 40% raise. I mean, just think about that. Would you like a 40% raise? 
I'd like a 40% raise. Now, what, what's incredible about this, right, is that, it, it, you know, there's been great, some really good reporting about this. I want to pull over here for uh, really good reporting about this, <clears throat> um, about that meeting, right? Is that, you know, there are a lot of parents who were at that meeting when the school board was voting on it who were basically saying, like, look, we could say that there's reasons that he should get a raise that, you know, maybe that we could make an, make an argument that he should get a raise, but a 40% raise that it's crazy. The problem of course, is that, or, you know, one of the reasons why he's getting such a reward is he's shown that he is willing to go along with the extreme measures that the board has been taking with the book banning, right? With all this. And, you know, I read this one article, uh, like about kind of what went on. And like, if I hadn't gone on, you know, this is the, this is the thing, right? This is why like, for example, the Bucks County beacon is such an incredible institution. I'm so thankful that we have the Bucks County beacon now, right? Because I was reading this other article about it and said like, Oh, you know, board member said, this is the reason why we should give, uh, give them a raise. And there were this reasons for it. And maybe it was a little bit much, but you know, they all, and it just made it seem like, okay, there was just like this conversation happened. Right. There was virtually no mention of the fact that multiple people came forward and spoke about the problems of this contract. Right. And, you know, there were these parents from the Moms for Liberty parents who basically showed up and were basically saying like, oh, because, you know, he 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 tracked down this and he got rid of this one guy. You know, he got rid of this one guy because um, because of his uh because of his, uh, he was a, he was sexually abusing like another, and that's true. He he did right. However, he only did that because the person, the person who was the, who was subjected to that, or people, I should say, Jackson Manning and Anna Shea Shafran. Right. Jackson Manning in particular is because he was speaking out against what happened to him. And that was fine. Right. But that's because somebody else came forward and then he had to do something about it. But the fact of the matter, there were other reports of abuse that was happening there were multiple reports on it that there was no action taken because the public didn't know about it. So I'm not sure what the, you know, what there, I mean, the board member, I mean, again, it's, it's breaking down as a, you know, this is kind of like team sports stuff now. Right. Um, you know, Team Republican is going to kind of, you know, reward their lapdog. Um, well, he's more than a lapdog, actually. You know, he's a willing participant in their um, in their agenda and their kind of, you know, all the culture war stuff. He's willing to do that. That's really why he's getting the raise. The other board members, of course, like uh, <clears throat> Delangelo, Mahmoud and Smith. 
right? They all spoke against the secrecy of the board and said that they had not known about the contract change until the agenda was posted on Friday. So they were not even consulted in this. Again, this is the majority going about and doing what they want and rewarding their people. This is out of the playbook of Hillsdale College, out of Vermilion Education, right? And there you go. So now, and there's all, there was all these initial questions too as well, because his contract's not up yet. So what they chose to do is dissolve his contract early. And there were some initial folks saying, wait, wait, wait you can't do this. What, this. what are you doing here? So that they could reissue a new one for five years. Right. And if you, you know, you do the math, it's because they want to make sure that he gets this new five year contract before the elections in the fall. Right. So that there's no risk that this guy is going to lose his job. Right. That's what's going on. And, you know, again, this is why we put so much so much attention in this stuff. You look at what happened in the Penridge School District. Right. In the Penridge School District, you know, excuse me, in the Penridge School District, you've got, you know, just like internal wars. And there you've got all it's all Republicans. Right. As we said on ton of time after time after time after time. Right. All these Republicans on our board are at war with themselves because who's going to be the more extreme? And as we have said again and again and again, right, really, there's not a whole there's not a big distance between the uh, majority and minority on the board. Right. With maybe the exception of Ron Wirtz, maybe he's like maybe he's uh, the one that there's actually a kind of significant difference in terms of ideology. The main difference has been over, say, personality, number one or number two, the way that you do things. Right. So the way that you do the way that you enact extreme policies is that wing is like the uh, 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 the Joan Cullen wing. Right. Joan Cullen, who knows the rules, Joan Cullen, who knows how to work that system. She knows the way that the, the structure works. She knows the bylaws. She knows the laws. Right. So she enacts just as extreme policies and has been there to enact just as extreme policies. But. She forces them through by, you know, being pretty somewhat above board about what about what the what the changes are going to be. Right. She meets her deadlines. That's what I mean. Right. So you need to announce something. You announce in plenty of time coming forward. Right. And when people object to it, you go like, I don't understand what the problem is. Right. She has a, a much more sophisticated political understanding of how you enact extreme policies, whereas you have Megan Bannis Clemens, Jordan Blomgren. They're just burn the crap to the ground. They're like, we are going to force our stuff through now while we have the time. There is an urgency and there is kind of this is the time. And this is what they say. This is the time. This is our moment. So we are going to transform our little school district right into like a, 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 a Christian nationalist associated site with a public dollar. It's just freaking good nuts. But it was just reported this week. This is from the uh, the Bucks County Herald. Um, I'll just read a little bit for you so you know what's going on. Uh, Penridge School Board member Christine Batiki says that she learned, quote, by happenstance Friday morning that curriculum consultant Jordan Adams would be meeting later that day with two other school directors. Batiki, a member of the board's um, curriculum committee, 
would have liked to sit in on the meetings to gain a better understanding of how Adams' recommendations for reviewing and rewriting curriculum have progressed since he landed a controversial last-minute $125-an-hour contract in April, despite what critics said was limited experience. Of particular interest is the ninth-grade social studies curriculum, which is being rewritten after the board dropped the high school graduation requirement for social studies from four credits to three. But Batiki couldn't get anyone to tell her where or when the meeting would take place, whether Adams was there in person or over Zoom. Quote, it's like this big secret, unquote, Batiki said. That's why they're not telling us. They don't want us there. Batiki said she emailed Adams the next day to ask for his notes for the meeting. She said she had previously been told, quote, any board member could email him and he would be happy to respond to questions, unquote. Instead, Adams declined to tell Batiki what was discussed at the meeting. In an emailed response, he referred Batiki to either Curriculum Committee Chair Jordan Blomgren or Board Vice President Megan Bannis Clemens, both who attended the meeting for that information. Adams said that his company, Vermilion Education, quote, abides by all public meeting laws, and I don't believe it is my place to share the comments of specific board members, unquote. Adams did, however, include a copy of his progress report dated July 25th, covering consulting activities for the previous month. The one-page, four-paragraph report said, quote, Vermilion is continuing the process of drafting and revising recommendations and model curricula for district considerations in 7th and 8th grade analysis of fiction and nonfiction, reading English language arts, and social studies grades 1 through 5 and grades 9. Furthermore, district staff and I have discussed areas in which curriculum recommendations may be strengthened in the curriculum, blah, 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 blah. This is just gobbledygook. The guy is putting gobbledygook forward just to say what it is. This is $125 an hour, secret meetings, rewriting the curriculum, and a one-page report on, how, on what's being spent. School is starting in about a month, and they do not have a social studies curriculum yet because this school board tanked the curriculum. You got to be freaking kidding me. Gotta be freaking kidding me. I mean, look, Joan Cullen basically said a version of what I just said, right? This is in the same report. Board member Joan Cullen disagreed. She said, quote, this is what Penridge taxpayers are paying are paying $125 an hour in unlimited numbers for, she said, referring to the July report. A guy to talk in vague terms about what he's supposedly doing, but never really showing anything of substance that he's accomplished. Exactly. So Colin even said, look, I have no idea what our ninth graders are going to be learning when they walk in the door at the end of August, she said. It's a tall order for teachers to deliver a curriculum that they've never seen. Oh, God, I didn't know this. Jenny, Jenny just said uh, Penridge just also closed the ability to apply for the superintendent position. That's like, what's that, just over a week? That that's been open? Two weeks, maybe? I'm telling you, they've got their candidates. I'm telling you, they got their candidates. They, I, I, I know this like from like the universe. <laughs> they've got their candidates already. They've already got people lined up to apply for this thing. They did. They met their kind of like official obligation to post this stuff, and then they're going to bring in a whole lot of their people and maybe a few stragglers. I, 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 I just, I, I, I can feel it in my bones. I can feel it in my bones. Oh, God. Well, so we'll see. You know, the end of the summer, 
There you go. And uh, did you see Barbie this past weekend? Or did you see Oppenheimer? Barbenheimer weekend? Um, I went to go see a movie the other night, and uh, the uh, the guy who was taking tickets to the other day said, I survived Barbenheimer weekend, Barbieheimer weekend. Uh, it's pretty good. Um, I saw Barbie, <clears throat> and um, and I, I was planning on going to see it opening. Like you know, my, you know, we've been talking about it. Like I uh, see the opening before. Uh, you know, Ben Shapiro and people on the right started losing their collective minds over it. <clears throat> or Ben Shapiro to like, cut up Barbie dolls and burn them. It's, it was like <clears throat> forty-five minutes, like of all this kind of stuff. Um, and who you know, there's there's some you know people that. Uh, well, I don't want to go into. I really don't care about what these people have to say, <clears throat> but um, it just goes to show you that they just can't can't stand it. Like they, you know, all this kind of men hating stuff. They said this is all uh, anti man. I laughed my ass off during that movie. I thought it was it was so full of joy. Like look, and I guess I could do a couple things, right? Like one, I saw a bunch of people on the left, right? I know there, there was a there was a, a critique that was posted in the Bucks, Bucks County Beacon. Um, there was, uh, there was, uh, you know, critiques that were, you know, both by supposed left folks out there, how like it's Mattel and it's like corporate thing and all that. I agree with like, look, look, it's sponsored by Mattel, right? It is about a toy, right? You know, are, is Mattel going to do something that is going to be out the critique of capitalism and then kind of destroy? No, they're not going to put support. So, I mean, are there things that, you know, that in a perfect movie would have had? Absolutely. Right. But what I thought was awesome about it is like quite a way it was like legitimately funny in the way that is like even say poked fun at it kind of itself, like as a company, right? The fact that, you know, well, I don't want to ruin it if anybody hasn't seen it yet, but because you really should see it. I'm telling you, it's like it's <clears throat> it's fun. It's like all this like it's a popularizing of a, a really significant critique. Right. And and again, if I look at, you know, all the radical work that I've, say, read and people I've talked to over the course of the year, you know, the, I understand where the critiques are coming from. Right. But I also know there is, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm forgetting who said this once. Right. The, the idea is that, you know, I think Mark Engler was it might have been him who was talking about this on, on the show. And I've had other people on the show come on on Out to Coop Live in particular um, talk about this like. And I read this like in in my in my activist writing media class, right? It's like, like the, the there's there's the role of critique, right, and radical critique, and nothing moves without radical critique and organizing around that stuff. Nothing nothing moves without that, right? But there's also the goal of the critique. Right. Say we're talking about critique of capitalism, critique of corporate ownership, critique of white feminism, whatever you're going to talk about. Right. The goal of the critiques is not to remain a cloistered like monastery where everyone in there is going to knows what they, each other is saying and agrees with each other. And they're because they're the true believers. The goal is to popularize it to the point where you win. <laughs> right. Right. This is what Steve Bannon on the right understood. This is what like Breitbart understood. Andrew Breitbart. Politics is downstream from culture. And ultimately what they were talking about with that, and this is true in a lot of social movement theory, too, is like, like, look, 
the goal, like, yes, politics is the organizing to challenge these particular things and to kind of like win a majority within these particular spaces. Right. But the shifts happen because you not just because you engaged in ideological critique, the shifts happen because you've engaged in popular organizing. That is so much bigger than those kind of specific critiques. And sometimes I think, my personal opinion, those folks on the left forget that process of movement, right? Forget that the goal is to, is to win as opposed to purity. And like when you're in the opposition, and this is one thing that I, I just think is, I don't know, maybe it's because whatever, I, I've, I've been thinking about this for a long time in my life, right? I mean, there was a time when I was much younger, right? Right, where I could sit there and like say, you know, I want everyone to, to live like this, right? And this is the right way. And this is way how we meet everybody's needs and all that other kind of stuff. But, you know, wh so what am I going to do? Impose that on other? That's like messed up, right? This was always my problem with like vanguardism, right? You know, the idea that you have some enlightened elite take things over and do that. No, that, that, that doesn't work. Because the world is messy. Human beings are much more messy than that, right? This is why I always, you know, I, I think Gramsci always had a really, like, really good handle on this stuff. You know, Michael Brooks, um, whose anniversary of his passing was just this past week, you know, he was the co-host of Majority Report. He wrote a bunch of stuff. He was so good about this stuff, right? Michael Brooks was always one that said, look, you want to win in, you want to win, right? You want to, you want to, you want to move things forward. Right? That doesn't mean the critique stops, right? Just like we talked about with the UPS strike, right? Like, I mean, perfection is not the same thing as winning, right? Perfection is that horizon that we constantly walk towards, right? Democracy, deep democracy is the one that we constantly walk toward, rock towards. And there's always going to be new problems that come up. So, I mean, so anyways, that's a long way of saying what I saw, what was so joyful about Barbie for me, right, was that this was in the public. This was, this smashed box office records. And they're talking overtly about patriarchy as a system. And it was funny. You know, they deploy all the stuff, right? You've got to flip the scripts, right? You know, what would it look like if you turned everything around and like men were in women's place and women were in men's place or that kind of stuff. But then you get to see all that played off each other. I thought that was that was great. And there were like men and women and kids in the theater, packed theater, laughing so hard. And unlike some of the critiques I've seen on the left, right, uh, from the left, right, is that those people who were laughing so hard weren't then motivated to go out and buy Barbies. They weren't there just as a, 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 a marketing pitch to go buy more Barbies. It was the, it was the story, right? It was that sense of ide this ideological moment. So I don't know. So I, I loved it. I just thought it was, I, I would go see it. I'll see it in a second. And like, look, 
<clears throat> the right is going to freak out about any of something. Anytime you you, you want to talk about kind of systems, you want to talk about something systemic. Liberals kind of freak out about this stuff too, as well, right? When you talk about systems, systemic stuff, instead of just talking about like you know individual you know responsibility. Once you start doing that, the right's going to freak out, especially if it, it kind of jeopardizes the role of the white guy, right? If it jeopardizes the role of kind of white supremacy, they're going to all freak out, right? So that should be expected. It, I, I thought what the funny thing was the degree, right? The, the amount of kind of freak out there was was just hilarious. So whatever. Um, what here? But I'll end today on a little bit more of a somber note. Um, you know, uh, Sinead O'Connor died at uh, the age of 56 this week. Um, and she was just amazing. You know, I was, I was sharing with my kids, some of the music that meant music of hers that meant the most to me. I still think one of my, my favorite songs, and you know, there's a bunch of stuff. Still my favorite song of hers, Emperor's New Clothes. I love the, I love the fact that the music itself is a little bit more kind of like marchy and upbeat but the lyrics are so thoughtful and considering and kind of like personal. I mean, I just love that. And her voice is just incredible. Um, but Morrissey, um, you know, one of the things I just came across, I just came across this morning, right? Um, and Morrissey um, wrote this really, you know, they called it in uh, the, the Guardian, they called it an impassioned screed. Right. And he says that you hadn't the guts to support her. Right. And. Uh, I'll just read this. I, I just really like this. Oh, he wrote this on his website, but it's come down. It says that he praised her. Well, this, I'm going to read from The Guardian. Praising her, quote, proud vulnerability, he writes on his website, quote, there is a certain music industry hatred for singers who don't fit in this. I only I know only too well. And they have never praised until they are never praised until death when finally they can't answer back. You praise her now only because it's too late. You hadn't the guts to support her when she was alive and she was looking for you. The press will label artists as pests because of what they withhold. And they would call Sinead sad, fat, or shocking or insane. Oh, but not today. No, music CEOs who put who had put on their most charming smile as they refused her um, for their roster are queuing up to call her a feminist icon. And 15-minute celebrities and goblins from hell and record labels of artificially aroused diversity are squeezing into, onto Twitter to Twitter their jibber-jabber when it was you who talked Shanae into giving up because she refused to be labeled and she was degraded. And, tho and those few who move the world are always degraded. And he goes on to kind of praise her and puts her in the, in the you know, similar to Judy Garland and Whitney Houston, Amy Winehouse and Marilyn Monroe and Billie Holiday. Quote, she was a challenge and she couldn't be boxed up and she had the courage to speak when everyone else stayed silently, uh, safely, safely silent. She was harassed for simply being herself. Her eyes finally closed in the search of a soul she could call her own. All right. One of her most, uh, you know, one of the moments that kind of really set off the controversy, quote unquote, was when, uh, you know, this is before all the major news broke around the um, child abuse in the Catholic Church, right? But more and more people were beginning to speak out, right? The major reports were hadn't broken yet, but, you know, and she knew it, right? And she knew activists and she knew that kind of stuff. And so she went on, um, 
she went on uh, Saturday Night Live and sang a version of Bob Marley's War. Right? Everywhere there's war in the East, war in the West. And at the end of that, right, famously, at the end, you know, everywhere there's war. And then she stops, she pulls out uh, a picture of the Pope and says, tears up, that he said, fight the real enemies, not the war, fight the real enemies, the people who are abusing kids. And for that, she was banned from American television for quite some time. So, rest in power, Sinead O'Connor. Um, it's one of those days, right? You start thinking about her, um, and think about her life and what she meant. So, but so everybody, listen, uh, I hope you have a good weekend. Uh, I want to special thanks again to Jenny and Amy who let me know about some of the technical details, we our problems that we had at the beginning of the show. Um, but for now, I hope that... Uh, <laughs> This finally record. I hope I can get this worked out. I'm still trying to get you know figure out what we can do with my uh, with my mixer so we can go back to quote unquote some sort of degree of normal. But at least I'm learning about uh, how to get around it better um, each way. So thank you. Anyways, this is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Uh, you can help support the show by heading over to Patreon.com/slash/RCPress. Become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Yep, and I'll let you know what's happening on Monday. Um, but until then, keep up the fight. See ya.